0: I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've got a pretty light week. Uh, all that came out in theaters wide was a horror movie called The Possession of Hannah Grace. And then I took my, the rest of my week to see a new movie at my local art house theater, uh, the Swedish film Border, plus the latest Pokemon animated movie, which came out uh, via Fathom Events. And then I took some time to check out The Gauntlet from MST3K on Netflix So uh, why don't we uh, get right to it since that's all we've got Let's get started End of story I had no idea this was coming out. I had never heard of this movie until I checked the schedule. And it was the only wide release coming out after Thanksgiving. It definitely feels like a post-Thanksgiving release. Because it definitely (laughs) feels like a movie the studio wants you to forget. And it is Sony. So, good choices, Sony. Just fantastic choices all around. Um, Yeah, this feels like it should have been released around Halloween you know this should like like the the weekend after um the Blumhouse's Halloween like Blumhouse's Halloween uh dominated the week dominated the holiday but this could have easily gone up against things like um the week after um the Blumhouse's Halloween came out was Hunter Killer Johnny English Strikes Again and indivisible. From what I remember, I, there, I think there was like one more that came out. So this could have easily been put after Blumhouse's Halloween. This, it, wouldn't top, it wouldn't have dominated the box office, but it wasn't going to dominate the box office this week either. It, but it would have made more sense to release this around Halloween. You've got a horror movie. Why would you release it after Thanksgiving? This this feels like just no, just throwing darts at a board. Uh, you know on a calendar to see like Okay uh, looks like Position of Hand of Grace is coming out after Thanksgiving Good good job everybody Just Dynamite work uh, um, So yeah What we've got here is a, re- a very bad Attempt at an exorcism movie Or a, you know a possession movie it's Not even a full on exorcism movie They start with exorcism uh, Iconography It starts as an exorcism movie but then it just becomes A demon possession movie and it's just not good. It is it is so inept and un un uh, incapable of doing anything right by the genre. I mean it just fo- it tries to follow the basics of possession movies and like it has a good germ of an idea. The idea being that you've got uh, a an ex cop who um you know, had a kind of has a had a traumatic moment and and kind of was put on I guess leave or was she fired or did she take some time off? They, they, they never really specify what happened. Basically, what happened was there's an instance where she froze and her and her partner um, was shot, and then she's been traumatized by that instance for. Along, for some time now uh, turned to alcoholism and narcotics like uh, prescription pill addiction. And we never see any of that. This is her uh, on the recovery and trying and getting a new job in order to um, kind of move forward and try to get past what happened. And her job, is, her AA sponsor as a night nurse at at, Boston, at some Boston hospital. I don't know if it's real or not, but uh, – but the her her sponsor gets her a job as I guess a morgue's attendant? I'm not quite sure. Basically she's in charge of the morgue after hours and you know during the graveyard shift. And the whole bit is it's her, two security guards, and then uh Nick Thune, comedian Nick Thune, um plays a an affable um ambulance driver who comes in every so, who who comes in throughout the night and and while she's there uh she you know they establish that she kind of suffers from hallucinations i guess from the trauma that she kind of revisits in her head and so she she um continually tries to uh revert to Xanax abuse again but she you know it's her trying to overcome that over the course of the movie and one and during one of her shifts, they bring in a body um Nick Thune brings in a body of a of a young woman who seems to be all who seems to be like cut and burned and just all kinds of lesions and and stuff was done to her and For you, the audience, you realize this is the woman at the beginning of the movie who suffered from demon possession that had the botched exorcism. And it turns out... She's not really dead. The demon is still within. Ooh. And it's... And it's... All throughout the night... Her trying to prove that the... That she's not crazy. That there is something going on. And... then eventually trying to stop this demon... Within uh, this girl. And... See, it sounds cooler than it is. Like... A good B-movie could take that premise and make something crazy and wild and energetic and kind of trashy. Like, if you went the trashy route with this, you could have had a fun B-movie. This tries to be an A-movie in that it tries to take itself seriously and it's not competent enough to be taken seriously. Like, the actors are all wooden, don't know how to give good performances... Um, let me look up the director. Maybe they did good work in the past. I'm not sure, but they didn't do any good work here. I don't know anything about the writers. I know that there was a Christmas zombie apocalypse musical that came out in the theaters this weekend, just not in ohio um diedrich von Ruy, Ruygen, Ruygen. um he's a he's a Danish. Director from the Netherlands and No Danish is Denmark Dutch is Yeah Dutch is Netherlands um, So he's a Dutch director who did Taped, Black Widow And Daylight So he's mainly known for Dutch productions This is his first uh, This seems to be his first uh, ma- Unless Black Widow is an American series No Black Widow is a Dutch series So this is his first Major American production And Sometimes they bring in European directors; they work out really well. And sometimes they just they're. Sometimes they the director is just brought in because he's a sap that the studio can mandate and direct for, direct by proxy. Like do this Hey, new guy, do this. And yeah, I have no idea. Uh, the The writer is Brian Sieve, who wrote for the screen TV series, the Teen Wolf TV series, Boogeyman Two. And something up, something coming up called the exorcism at Lincoln High, Boogeyman two and three. So this dude is a TV writer. This is just blatantly a TV writer. He's not, no, he cannot direct A level material. So he, and he's writing for B level TV too, like Scream, Teen Wolf, Boogeyman. These aren't A material. This should be trashy, like B movie stuff. And yet this movie, this movie Possession of Hannah Grace wants to take itself super seriously. Like it's all like it, it tries to treat itself almost as art horror in a way, the way it's directed, the way it's paced. The, the actors are all like TV people. Nick Thune, he's a stand-up comedian from last last I checked or maybe like a comedic actor. Shay Mitchell, I think is the the lead actress. She's from Pretty Little Liars and with the other people in this uh gray damon is her ex-boyfriend who's from percy jackson uh and true blood and the and he's mirror master on the flash so once again we're dealing with tv grade actors and the only one who really stands out kind of is the girl who plays hannah grace mainly because she's like a contortionist and She's a dancer and and she can do the cool stuff that it, that it, that is demanded of a bo- of a dead bo- of like a possessed body, so she can do that stuff and that's and unfortunately, they make her naked throughout the whole movie, but thankfully, they never show any of the bits. So if this were an R-rated movie, she'd be naked wait, this is an R-rated movie. it's an R-rated movie, but they don't and there's a naked woman throughout the movie if there's no bits. Like, no topless? No, I, I get that you don't want to go full frontal, maybe. Um, I know uh, the next movie I'm going to be talking about actually does full frontal. But you're an R-rated horror movie. You have a woman who's naked throughout the entirety of the movie. And there's, like, no nudity. Is there nudity? Do they... Like, is the fa- very fact that she's naked at all qualify as nudity? Where's the... Where's the reason for the rating? Gruesome images and terror. It's not even R rated for nudity. This is this is this might as well just be a PG thirteen movie. It's directed like one. It's cut like one. It's paced like one. It's acted like one. It, it, this movie is baffling to me. Like it it try it. This qualifies as an R? Really? This is this is the bare minimum you have to do to qualify for an R rating. Uh really the only thing going for this uh, is some decent makeup and then the actress playing uh Hannah Grace uh the possessed Hannah Grace is a good contortionist but that's just it she she doesn't do anything the char- there's nothing else to the character there's nothing else and then the girl then the actor is playing all these other roles like Nick Thune is the nice guy and even in my sparsely populated theater when you know when it, when he was targeted by the demon everyone's like oh not him like that's the only reaction people got because nick thune was a nice guy and <laughs> it really is just ba- it's just baffling that that, that this it was that this was put out in theaters like this is a direct-to-dvd movie but at best but this doesn't this doesn't warrant a ten dollar admission fee why would you pay ten dollars to see this you could do better and that's kind of what is going to lead into my discussion later on. But yeah, this is just. Uh, there's um, I've been listening to some backlogs of uh, god awful movies from the guys over at uh, Puzzle and Thunderstorm, uh, you know Skeptocrat, um, Scathing Atheist, those guys, and they have a term that I haven't heard anywhere else for jump scares. They call them pop scares. I don't know if it's a colloquialism colloquialism like further east or something or maybe it's just something they came up with i i have no idea but basically the pop this is like lazy pop scares and and terrible acting and bad writing this could have been in the hands of a better writer and a director this could have been like a cheesy b uh possession like demon possession movie like I do think I'm, I'm, my mind goes back to one of my earliest video reviews during 2012. And that was, I believe the possession, um, it was Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Modest Yahoo played a Jewish, uh, Jewish. He played a rabbi. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Natasha Kallis, Callas? Natasha Kallis, Kira Sedgwick. And then Modest Yahoo played a, a rabbi who did the exorcism I don't and it was of a jewish demon from a um from a from a what to call it, box um they don't listen in the imdb description but basically there's like a, G- a demon a demonic uh jewish uh puzzle box thing that uh takes possession dibbic box i think um people can people can correct me and and you know you can send me let me know in, the, in uh through the email uh let me know if I'm right or wrong but it was interesting they did something new with the whole premise of the exorcism movie now it's a jewish sort of traditional demonic possession with orthodox jewish um exorcism practices and it's it's it was interesting. I didn't love it or hate it. I didn't like love it, but it was interesting. It tried new things. I appreciated what it was trying to do. This movie does nothing. It just it just it's just lazy setup and execution, and it expects you to pay ten dollars because you're stupid. You like horror movies. You'll you'll buy this, and it's so you know it's just unbothered by the fact that it eh we did our we did the bare minimum and that's all people want and it's just so resigned to the fact that they don't have to try that hard and maybe they did want to try really hard but just something happened in the editing process and what we finally got out of it was a really terrible movie you can never tell with these kind of productions it, sometimes producers will step in and make something you know make something more roped and um just a term. Uh like by the numbers, when the director wanted to do something unique and interesting, and the writer had some cool ideas, but the studio was like, No, nah, we gotta make it we gotta make it like every other movie because we wanna make money, we don't wanna be interesting. Meanwhile, there are movies that try to be interesting and then also make money. Like Shape of Water. Shape of Water was interesting and it won Best Picture. Because even though it was based on uh, essentially, a a romantic interpretation of the creature from the Black Lagoon. It was something people hadn't seen before, and it was trying you know trying to do stuff other than the normal sort of Hollywood formula. I mean, it followed those formulas, but it was the packaging was different. Here, there's nothing unique or interesting. It's just generic horror movie. So why would you pay ten dollars to see this in theaters when you can actually get better? Hor- the the Haunting of Hill House is is blowing up on netflix and why would you pay money to go to the theaters to watch a terrible horror movie when you could sit home and watch netflix make a decent horror tv series you know so that's once again this is going to lead into the discussion but they'll the, uh, the possession of hannah grace maybe they had something going for them but the end product is just skippable one of the one of the biggest wastes of my time from horror this year Du ska inte lyssna på mycket på vad människor säger. Hela mitt liv sa ingenting. Förstånda polis! Hör! So while the other movies I mentioned, uh, and in the apocalypse, and if Beale Street Could Talk, didn't make it out my way, I did. I was able to g- revisit my local art house theater, and it is there that I saw this interesting movie. It is from the writer of, um, Let the Right One In, and from the director of. I didn't recognize his name, Ali Abbasi known mainly for Shelley M for Marcus and um that's it Shelley and M for Marcus when M for Marcus was a short so this is his second um director you know this is his second movie as a director and he co-wrote this with um based on the short story "Grind" uh from John Ivid. I- I- Lind Lindqvist. Um but Ali Abbasi co-wrote this with Isabella Ecluff and the and the short story writer as well. So this was uh the short story writer, the director and uh the and the writer of uh let the right one in. It's neat. So uh basically what we've got here is a somewhat urban fantasy uh, without going too much into the twist, uh, the revelation—what Bas- we've got here—are two sort of almost Neanderthal, troglodytic hu- uh, human characters um, or humanoidian characters. One is a wo- one is a sort of one is a woman played by Ava Melander, um, and one is a guy, and one is played by Iro Milanov. And, uh, you know, his, his character is very creepy and off-putting, but you get why, um, the main character is into him. And that's the thing. You look at the actors playing these roles, they're, they're, they're love, they're lovely people. They're, they're good looking people. Like, uh, Ava Melander is from several Swedish productions and you, and she's a bit, and she's, Kind of, uh, she's got kind of a look about her. Though. I'm trying to think of who a good comparison would be. Um, so, that uh kind of Nicole Kidman. A bit of a Nicole Kidman. And then, Iro Milanoff is. He kind of looks like Biff from Back to the Future. Uh, so, he, so he's kind of a. also kind of looks like Justin McElroy a bit. Like, if Justin McElroy went full Hollywood. So he's a Finnish actor, and he's he, he. These aren't these aren't hideous people, but the with the makeup you couldn't tell. You, they the makeup is so so well applied that you couldn't tell where what part was the actor and what part was the makeup. But and they, you've got these. They, they they look like Neanderthals. They look like the Geico. They look like they're trying to sell you uh, insurance from Geico, but. Uh basically you've got a main character Tina who works for border patrol in uh cust- you know she's a customs officer works in border patrol and she, her, ma- her main thing is that she can smell feelings and they they go into why that is as the movie goes along but she works for customs and she's able to pinpoint when people are hiding something so she like her first get in the movie like her first uh um catch in the movie is a, is a teenager trying to smuggle in liquor and then eventually it leads into her trying to her bring in her catching a um a child pornographer uh like smuggler he, he child pornography smuggler and eventually because she is able to catch him she is brought in by the police to into the investigation to find out where these uh where you know how cause since she was able to pinpoint this porn child pornography smuggler, then maybe she can help find the the ring and bring in bring down this ch- this child pornography ring that's happening n- locally and meanwhile she's kind of in this not really relationship but like almost cohabitation with this uh dog breeder and uh dog show um Content, like like uh, owner, like he takes his he has Rottweilers that he takes to dog shows, and he doesn't really care much for her. You almost get the feeling that he's going like he's get has a side relationship, and that they're more, that they're more like roommates than av- than an actual relationship. And Tina's kind of you know Tina's feeling she's you know she's always getting side eyed by people. People call her ugly and everything, and they ne- they don't never really. They, they they always kind of judge her, so she's always kind of felt left out. And it's through meeting Vor. Vore? Vor? Um Eros' character, who is v- much more uh, Neanderthalic looking than her. She's just kind of off-putting. She, he's like a full-on, ne- like like knuckle-dragging, uh, ne- like caveman-looking guy, and he kind of introduces. To her what is going on Like why she, ha- why she is who she is Why she looks the way she does Why she never, fi- she never fits in And they have this wild Like passionate romance And then as things go about Things are never quite the way they seem And it's very morally gray And it's you know You're never quite sure what to think about Everything that's going on But you know you do see this character Tina is the moral center Of this whole story. Where she just wants to do the right thing. And be a good person. And it's once she finds out. All of these things that are going on. It's her trying to. Deal with these sorts of. These evils within the world. And stop them. And try to deal with all of these. You know. Just just this darkness. And try to be good in spite of that. And try to stop it where she can. Um. I won't reveal what the fantasy twist is, but there's a fantasy element, especially if you're familiar with like um, Nordic mythology and Scandinavian mythology. It ties into that, and yeah, it, it also go- deals into issues of like cultural genocide. Um, in that regard, uh, it's really deep. And without revealing the twist, I don't want to give too much away, but it doesn't shy away from real world issues, where it's like here are these. Here's this um, culture that that the that the mainstream society nearly wiped out in order to uh, civilize them, as it were. And then you've got all of these sorts of criminal activities going on. But you know, it's hard to say whether or not you know where because sometimes it's done out of greed, sometimes it's done out of righteous vengeance, and you're never quite sure what to think. Of everything that's going on, and Tina's kind of left to deal with these problems and try to rise above it all, and try to become a better person in spite of it. And I think that's what makes this movie work: is that Tina is this moral center. She never wavers from her morality over the course of this movie. She always wants to be the best. She always wants to be a good person. Even with the evil that's surrounding her. And I think the twist kind of... Like, it makes sense when it's revealed. And then it's it's a weird movie, too. Like, this one earns its R rating. Like, whereas the other movie... Whereas Possession of Hannah Grace... Feels like a PG thirteen movie that doesn't qualify as an R. This one is like this one has a full on like weird, weird and off putting sex scene between uh, Tina and Vore Vore, and it's it's a it's like a it's got all the trappings of a of like a Swedish thriller like along the lines of the Millennium series or um, you know those kinds of. Those kinds of movies. But it's also like a romance. It's got fantasy elements. It's like an urban fantasy in that regard. And it's a unique and interesting movie. I didn't love it. It's not like one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Like, It's not going to make my list at all. Like, Even as an honorable mention. But I appreciate this movie. This is going to be my pick. Whereas, I forgot to mention it. Uh, Position of Hannah Grace is by, by far my uh, unpopped kernel. That's the one I say skip. It's the worst thing I saw this week, whereas this is the best thing I saw this week, but it's a very lukewarm pick of the week. I don't love this movie. I really like it. And if you get the chance to see it and you're up for something unique and interesting and mature and complex, I highly recommend this. This is a very well put together movie. And... um I'm, re- I'm, I'm interested to see if Ali Abassi makes his – like, that's a director I could see making the transition over to Hollywood and directing like a thriller or going like the David Fincher route. and Or maybe going, maybe going the romance route. Maybe he directs a uh, romantic novel adaptation or something. Like, he has the capability to really co- uh, come across the pond and make something unique and interesting if Hollywood would let him. Whereas the other guy, like maybe he's good in this, maybe he's good in the Netherlands, but he his his big crossover movie was just a weak sauce movie. So if you get the chance, really check out Border. Like maybe look check out your local art house theaters, or maybe a major cineplex, like a giant cineplex. I know the um, big cineplexes that are like almost twenty screens will showcase indie movies as well. Um, so, if you get have either of those kinds of movies, theaters at, in near you, just see if they're playing Border, and I highly recommend you check it out. Watching won't help anything. So, what do you say we go and protect Fula City? I won't run. I want to use my research to save people and Pokemon. I don't know about the past, but we're with you now. Yeah. When you're with a Pokemon, it's like your muscles and your mind get a lot stronger. And that's called Pokemon Power! And the last thing I saw is we this week in theaters uh is actually, is a fathom event cuz sadly that's where the pokemon franchise is in terms of its movies maybe detective pikachu will change that and then the the animated movies will get more play but i i remember when the phenomenon was huge and the first 5 movies all made it to theaters without a problem you know after the third movie they did start to come in limited releases But they still managed to make it to theaters in, like, theatrical runs. Whereas since uh, X and Y, and I think, like, before, uh, maybe they started with Pikachu, Pokemon, I Choose You. But, yeah, most of the Pokemon movies now in theaters have to be through Fathom Events because they're, I guess the audience just isn't there for... Uh, or the distribute maybe the distribution isn't there maybe uh, and then hopefully the Detective Pikachu movie will kind of highlight that hey Warner Brothers can totally release this wide it doesn't have to be a a, a niche release anymore because maybe the Detective Pikachu movie will prove that there's an audience for it and that they can they won't lose maybe there aren't losses but I don't have the numbers from the Fathom events to back that up at any rate um the newest Pokemon animated movie is called The Power of Us and. I'm seeing a lot of negativity from, like, Pokemon, from the Pokemon community. They, they're calling it one of the wor- lower end of the movies. I didn't mind it. I mean, writing-wise, it's basic. It is even more basic than the last movie, sadly. But I think what they were trying to do is more admirable. Uh, the premise here is Ash uh, from Pokemon I Choose You, the rebooted which is odd. Like As soon as they got to Sun and Moon, instead of doing movies based in Alola, they went straight to rebooting the movie universe. And making it entirely separate from the anime se- TV series. Um, but yeah, following the events of Pokemon I Choose You, Ash and Pikachu are off on uh, on their own new adventure to this... Fictional city that runs on wind power thanks to Lugia. Like Lugia blessed them with high winds and they use wind turbines to power the city. And you've got a whole collection of characters from an older uncle to a little girl who claims to be the best Pokemon trainer in the world. And then you've got like this kind of almost pop idol looking teenage girl who is an ex-runner who after an injury kind kind of gave up on pursuing that as like as a as a passion uh who is who was recruited by her brother to catch him a pokemon specifically eevee to tie into the new games that I've totally been playing uh ever since they came out anyway um then of course, then you've got an older woman who is revealed to have a a much darker past, but she is very anti-Pokemon. She's like she hates being around Pokemon. She doesn't want Pokemon near her. And then as, over the course of the movie, she essentially becomes a cat lady with Pokemon. <laughs> it's adorable. And then you've got a scientist who's uh, kind of who kind of is introverted and not very good at talking to people, but who's very integral to the to the plot of the movie. And who's the other one? You've got the you've got the uncle character Callahan, who I actually kind of liked. Ash, um, Risa, who I how I thought would make a great companion for the rest of the movies. Um, you've got the scientist. You've got the old lady. Oh, and then you've got the mayor's daughter, who is tied into the to the um, legendary of the movie Zaraora, who has a very weird name. I do not like the name Zaraora. One, it sounds too close to Zoroark. It sounds like they should be related. But, the also, I, like, it's a great design. I think they could have done a better name. They could have gone with a better name. Um, I don't know. Like, I know Legendaries are supposed to have iconic, mass. you know, just all, all-encompassing all names. Archaeus, Mewtwo, Mew and, Mew, I mean, Mew and Mewtwo are simplistic, but Articuno, Zapdos, Moltres... Uh, Raikou, Ente, ho Lugia, Palkia Dialga, Giratina, Zara Aura. Uh, like, it's weird. And, like, it sounds weird in my mouth. It sounds like you're always going to mispronounce. It sounds like even when you pronounce it right, you're mispronouncing it. But, yeah, the, as far as writing goes, the legendaries are superfluous to the plot. Like, Lugia shows up at the very end to do a deus ex machina. Even though, like, the whole tease of the movie is that this is about Lugia and its, and its um, t- connection to the city. You think it in a good movie, like, this would have been more like Pokemon Heroes. Where the legendaries are tied into the plot of the movie. But, no, those legendaries are here to remind you that, hey, you remember the U- Ultra Sun and Moon games? You still playing those kids? And then the rest of the stuff is tying into "Let's Go Pikachu" and "Eevee," where it's like, "Hey, check out the new games." I mean, um, Jello Apocalypse kind of called this out for a Hoopa and the Legend of the Ring uh, and, the, uh, and the Legend of the Rings, or something like that, or the Clash of Ages. Clash of Ages—that's what it is. And that is a massive Pokemon battle of legendary Pokemon to showcase. Out, out, um. A, a, um I think it was Alpha, uh, pr- the primal forms of Groudon and Kyogre from the Alpha Ruby Omega Sapphire games. Um, or is it Alpha Sapphire Omega Ruby? Whatever the case. Um, it really is sadly a weaker on the side of the writing. But WordMix, like the plot and story aren't great, but the characters are what kept me interested. Risa, I think, was a, a cute. A cute character who had a decent arc—not a—not an amazing arc. None of the arcs are amazing; they're kind of predictable. But I liked where they—I liked the characters themselves, even though the writing was not the best. Like Callahan. I loved him in the movie just because he's a very affable, you know, guy who was like, ha ha, I, you know, he, he's showboating to impress his niece. And then when it does the, and then thankfully the liar revealed thing gets out of the way so that they can move on and then he can grow as a character and he does so by befriending a pseudo wudo. And I love what him and Sudowoodo, him and Sudowudo made me love Sudowudo as a Pokemon even more. I think Sudowudo is probably like my third favorite Pokemon, following um, Charizard and Saucebuck. Because dear, I'm a I'm a dear kid. If <laughs> my favorite movie of all time being Bambi didn't give that away, um, but yeah, it's sadly the the stuff with the legendaries and the stuff and the, and a lot of the showcases going on feel like they're trying to tie into the games. It's like, "Hey, Ultra Sun and Moon are still out and also we've got Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. Check this stuff out." And it it it's kind it's definitely the we- on the weaker side of the movies, but I still liked what they did with the character. I think the characters kept this from being just a terrible terrible Pokémon movie. Or, I feel like the worst, for me, are still the Ru- the Ruby Sapphire Advanced Generation uh, Pokemon Advanced movies. Those are the ones I never want to see again. Aside from Lucario and the Mystery of Mew, none of those I want to see again. And, some, and then, of course, the black and white movies are all... They're all just, you know, skippable. The entire black-white anime was a mistake. <laughs> they could have done so much better with that, and yet they didn't. Um... Yeah, uh th- as far as this goes, I I still think Pokémon Ash's U is better written, but I think this has some great characters in it. I think it's not as bad as people are la- like people are laying into it because it's not good, but I think there's good parts in it that keep it from being terrible. And namely the ca- and namely the good parts being the characters. I like I like the mayor's daughter. I like her st- like her, her and Z- Aura are cute and Ash is, Ash is solid. I think he and Risa have great chemistry. They could have. E- they could easily make her a companion for the movie franchise. I'm surprised they didn't bring back any of his companions from the last movie. I, just, I guess it's just he's going to be like Bond now. He's got, he's got new companions every movie. And I th- feel like that's a mistake. I feel like he, they should establish he has friends continuing on this journey. He's not just making new friends every movie. I feel like he should have a consistent you know, group like he always does. You know, that's when he's at his. That's why he's. That's why it's the anime works so well is because he's always got that group of friends whatever in whatever region he goes to. Um, yeah, there's no real antagonist. Uh, really, when he when he comes when it comes down to it, it's just more like oh, circumstances and misunderstandings are the antagonist of the movie and it's a, it's like a it's like a weird chemical attack that happens because of random chance and it like there are like there are some bad guys in the movie, I mean, team rockets in the movie, but they serve more obviously as comedic foils and then the, and then they're um, in that sort of tournament mode where they're selling stuff to make money, but there are like uh poachers in the movie, but they don't play into the plot at all and then the final plot has nothing to do with the rest of the story it's more just like oh crap now this is happening it feels very ill defined and i think that's the biggest problem there's also like this weird sub there's like this weird side character throughout the movie and then, and then they finally reveal who it is at the end it's like the dumbest thing ever it's like oh hey kids like the youtubes here's like a pokemon youtuber and he looks like a weird luchador, I guess, or something. And then when they reveal who it is at the end, it's like, Okay, now I have more questions. It's so poorly thought out, sadly. And, yeah, it's so... It's so weird. Like, it definitely... I feel like if they weren't being mandated... I, it almost feels like they were being mandated by Nintendo or in Game Freak to be like, Hey, talk about the new stuff. Talk about the new stuff. Feature Eevee. Feature EV, and then there's this new legendary. Make sure that you're featuring them so they remember to go to GameStop to download it through Mystery Gift. It's it, uh, like if if they threw in Meltan in the movie, that would have that would have clinched it. That would have been like, okay, okay, guys, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Way to go, guys. Yep, yep. <laughs> Buy art hey. Buy the games, buy the games, buy the games. Have you bought the games yet? Go buy the games. Like, that's the thing. The Pokemon movies have been able to feature the legendaries and the best of the Pokemon movies do it in a way that they don't make it feel like a giant commercial. The best, you know, like, I feel like the po- uh, the Power of One, the Pokemon to the 2000, was um, a great example of that. You know, uh, obviously... Um, uh spell of the unknown and lucario and the mystery of mew are the be- are perfect examples of that and like lucario isn't even a legendary but they you know they sh- they're really showcasing um that pokemon as a, you know as a, as like the as like the as like their icon of generation 4 and the best of the pokemon movies are able to take the legendaries tell an interesting and unique story and not make it feel like a commercial for the games and here this feels like a commercial it's a solid commercial with interesting character like it's a decent commercial with interesting characters, but yeah, it's not it's not something to write home about either. It's not the worst thing I saw this weekend, <laughs> thankfully. But it's sadly, you know it sadly shows that maybe the Detective Pikachu can give this like a like a booster shot. You know, this can be like a nice shot in the arm of like, oh right, we could do good things. So we'll see later next year. But yeah (laughs) I just hope that the Pokemon anime movies can kind of spring back from this you know salutations ladies and gentlemen it's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat oh finally the last thing i I meant to see more on netflix this weekend but all i really caught up on were the final um episodes for uh the year for um last week tonight and uh hassan minaj's patriot act both of which are very good um hassan minaj did a great breakdown of the issues with content moderation and the first amendment in terms of like facebook and social media He, he he really is one of the best um to come out of The Daily Show. Uh, I still haven't caught up... Like, Comedy Central stopped putting The Daily Show on Hulu. So I have no means to really catch up on it. Unless I sign up for TV or something. Or I try to use their god-awful website. But... the uh, Out of the ones to spin off from The Daily Show... I feel like Colbert Report... Um, was probably the first great success. And then... Like I haven't watched Full Frontal. I have no idea if it's any good. But uh, last week tonight is probably the front runner for like the best out of all of them, just because the writing and the coverage and whatnot. It is so on on point and well researched and well executed. And then I think Hassan Minash's Patriot Act is kind of like the little brother who's like I can do that too, you guys. And he does, and he's and he's pretty good, and he's unique, and he, but he's also kind of awkward and like still trying to. Feel comfortable, like he got hand me down clothes from John Oliver and Colbert. <laughs> um, I think it's better than uh, nothing against uh, Michelle Wolf, but I think her show was sadly just very poorly written and executed. And then I can't think of any of the other uh, correspondents to get a spin off show uh, off the top of my head, but I know that uh, I think John Oliver really is the best out of all of them at this point. And then I think Hasan Minhaj is gunning for it. You know, he's really showcasing that he's capable of doing something similar. And B, have this unique style to him. And he really is a phenomenal stand-up as well. Um, uh, As far as stuff... You know, I I meant to watch Outlaw King. I missed that. I thought I was going to watch Mowgli, but that comes out this week. So I'll have to watch that at some point over the holidays, maybe. But... Um... All, what I did watch was uh, the Thanksgiving traditional release of uh, MSD3K. Uh, no- normally, it's a marathon on Comedy Central. Uh, I think this time it was on, like, Shout TV or something. But for Netflix, for the return, uh, for the, return um, the new rebooted uh, MSD3K, they did something called The Gauntlet. And I liked it. I think, it's a, I think it would be a great Thanksgiving tradition for them. You know, just the six of the worst movies they could find. And uh, for this, for this, um, they picked, they did pick some of the worst. Uh, Mac and Me, a notorious E.T. ripoff. They dipped their toe into The Asylum with Atlantic Rim. Um, And then, of course, they returned to their bread and butter old 80s B-movies like Lords of the Deep. Which was, um, I I think it was trying to be something along the lines of Leviathan or, um, you know, one of those underwater movies. Uh, the Day Time Ended, which is probably the best that they that they covered Um, their best episode for the Gauntlet. Killer Fish, which is a clear, like, piranha ripoff, which was, itself was a ripoff of Jaws. And then Ator the Fighting Eagle, which is basically a really terrible Conan wannabe. And... It's supposed to for the 30th anniversary of MST3K, which is a nice touch, too. And I really think this could be a great uh, annual tradition for the Netflix series. Like, every Thanksgiving, while the marathon is going on, they also do the gauntlet over on Netflix. Where it's six of the worst movies they can find, and then they return for their regularly scheduled programming in the rest of the year. You know, like, during the spring. And as far as this goes, compared to the compared to the first season of The Return... I actually like this a bit more. I think the jokes were better. I think they got their timing down. Really the worst parts are they continue to do the stupid love triangle between um, Max and uh, Kanga and Kinga? Kanga? Kangaroo? Whatever. Uh, Felicia Day, Patton Oswalt, and Jonah. And I feel like if they dropped that pretense, if they dropped the, the romantic triangle that is not... Good at all, like the unrequited love that Max has for Kinga, and the weird, weird when when Felicia Day tries to play like she's in love with Jonah, even if it's like like this weird twisted form of you know mad scientist love, it's not good. And I think it's because Felicia Day just isn't. She's kind of like a cheesy actress. I mean, she was born out of a web series based around like legal a legal legends rip off, but. I feel like she's not a good enough actress to play that role the way they're writing her. I feel like they need someone more m- more who can play more to that sort of camp and she's just kind of okay you know she's like quirky and adorable, but she's not like campy. I feel like they're i feel like you need but i mean when they compare her next to um what's her name from the original c series uh let me pull it up. But when you. And especially when she's paired next to Pat and Oswald, he's so weird when they, they try to make him crush on a woman half his age. It is so awkward. And then. Um, try to find. Who plays. I think. Pearl For- Mary Jo Peel returns as Pearl Forrester. That's not who. I'm thinking of Rebecca Hansen plays yeah Cynthia, who is kind of like the clone of her mom or something like that. And she, I think, could play the mad scientist and work well against Patton Oswalt. Felicia Day, just Kinga Forrester. Yeah, I feel like I feel like she was there as fan service for the guys. Like, oh God, it's Felicia Day. She's so hot and he she just isn't she ultimately isn't the right fit. I feel like I feel like Rebecca Hansen who also plays Gypsy would work great against Patton Oswalt cuz they do work fine when they you know for their characters and I feel like they have better chemistry than Felicia Day and him do. I don't know, I think it's just the writing is not the right fit for Felicia Day. She's not the right fit for that role. I feel like, and I feel like once again you get a get somebody who's a, like maybe a stand a fellow stand up or a, like an improv person somebody who can do like really punchy comedy and like when she and patton try to improv he's clearly so far ahead of her, and it's like it's like when a parent tries to let their kid win the race, win a win a foot race or something like that. It's like, oh, oh, Dad, Dad, daddy's gonna, Dad, daddy's gonna beat you. Oh no, you totally won. Like when a parent lets their kid win at a competition, that's kind of how it feels with Felicia Day and Patton Oswalt. Like he's so clearly better suited for that role than she is for hers, and. Eh. I don't know, but I, I do feel like the best episode out of this was the day the time ended because the jokes there were just on point. They had a great song for it. I, I, I for some reason, my favorite part was just a, a one weird inflection that Patton Oswalt gave for um, it was the invention exchange, and he's just like, "So that mustard dispensers don't get don't put don't work right on this hot dog. His 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 tube meat." It's some. I'm trying, uh, let me see if I can find the quote. I don't know if they added the quote for this or not, but it it was such a perfect inflection that it was. And then of course, um, the, the joke is that it's about um, uh, must they they um uh air uh not air airized I guess or uh, vaporized vaporized they vaporized mustard into a gas form, and it's mustard. Ga- the joke is that it's mustard gas, and so they they put gas mu- mustard gas on the hot dog and Fra- and max is like oh my god it yeah, is awful at birds! it burns and his put his 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 delivery is wonderful and amazing um uh, ah now they don't have the quote on imdb um but yeah check out the daytime ended it it it, it, it i mean the movie itself is so bananas it was ripe for um, MSD3K to do it is right up their alley and the other movies are solid too Like Mac and Me was great Uh, Atlantic Rim feels a bit too new for them but I feel like The Asylum isn't something you need to showcase for bad movies Like they weren't trying to be good Mac and Me was trying to cash in and it's clearly bad but it was done with earnest Atlantic Rim has no earnest to it. it it's a cheap, cheap like we, nobody cared making this. That's why I feel like you should steer clear of the asylum. Ultimately, when you do bad movies, like I do a bad movie night uh, every month with a group of friends, and when I asked uh, when they, when I was asked to join, I asked um, what movies the um, you know we should I should suggest if if you know to cover. And uh, the guy who runs it is like, yeah, just nothing nothing really new. We stick around stick to the seventies, eighties, and nineties, just because newer stuff just doesn't have that earnestness and i and i feel like that's great. like it's stuff for mst3k should be have that same vein. You don't want to do mst3k of thanks killing or um ginger dead man. Like those aren't really the best fit for mst3k. Rift tracks maybe, but like mst3k should focus mainly on cheesy B movies from like the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. That's when that's the that's when they're at their best. And yeah, it and that's why the rest of the stuff is great. Mack good. Lords of the Deep, solid. Daytime ended, perfect. Killer Fish, solid. And then A, toward the fighting eagle. Uh, the movie is good, but the writing for the the interstitials and the bookends. Uh, I hated the ending for the gauntlet. It felt so ham-fisted. Like, uh-oh, here's what happened. Oh, no, isn't this funny? Nah, not really. And I think it just ties, and once again, it ties into the fact that I don't like the love triangle. I think the romance in this series is forced and it's unnatural and it's, and it just doesn't work. I think like they should stop it. I feel like Kinga should focus more on maybe trying to find other, like if they did a thing where she tries to find other uh, mad scientists on like a Tinder app or something and she goes on bad dates or something I feel like Max should not be crushing on her as hard because when Pat and Os- like I think it's just the age difference. Pat Oswalt is way too old to be chasing after Felicia Day, even if it's just the characters. It really feels awkward seeing that happen. If it was if it was um you know the woman playing Cynthia, I feel like if that I feel like if it was someone closer in age to him, it wouldn't feel as awkward. But I feel like the fact that it's Felicia Day who feels it feels like he's chasing like it feels like a dad chasing after one of his daughter's friends. And that's, once again, nothing against Patton. Patton nails the role. He is perfect to play the son of Frank, um, son of TV's Frank. Uh, uh, and the, and, but Felicia Day just isn't a good fit for the son of Dr. Forrester. If, son of Dr. Forrester, the daughter of Dr. Forrester. I feel like they could have d- done with somebody, something better. If they wanted to do the romance, hire somebody older, someone closer in age... To uh, Max so that it doesn't feel as awkward. And then just finds somebody who's better at improv. Somebody who doesn't have to be a name. It just has to be somebody who's capable of, you know, just bum, 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 keeping up. Felicia Day is always kind of feels like she's one step behind. And I feel like the actors playing uh, like Baron Vaughn is starting to fit into the role of Tom Servo. The guy playing Crow is decent i like that they're using gypsy more and they have some new bots as well like the 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 show was starting to come into its own i still think felicia day is the weak link sadly she is just not the best part of the season that she's not the reason to watch the show and if they replaced her a couple you know by season three i wouldn't miss her i feel like maybe if they had like another daughter of dr forrester come in or maybe a new scientist takes over and and takes out uh, Dr. Kinga, and it's like, you got a problem with this? And Max is just like, no, nope, I don't mind. Don't care. Don't care. And, like, maybe he'll miss her every so often or something, but, but I feel like Felicia Day is not the best fit. Or maybe, like, she was not the real Dr. Kinga Forrester, maybe there's and then there's a somebody else, and then she was a failed clone of Kinga Forrester or something, or a failed attempt at a daughter uh, through science or something. I don't know. Point is, I don't think she's a good fit for the show, sadly. And... I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how the rest of season two plays out. But I do like the idea of the gauntlet. And I feel like that would be a great um, Thanksgiving Day tradition to continue on the regular tradition of the marathon. So that's my thoughts on it. Anyway, uh, after the break, we'll come back with a discussion on what should, what is worth seeing in theaters. Did you know Asher's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. episode is going to be dealing with what movies should you see in theaters and should be seen in theaters um ideally like this shouldn't be too much of an issue and the whole thing with this is that i'm not trying to make it sound like theater should be some elitist sort of thing where only certain movies get to be seen in theaters i get the here's the thing obviously temple movies and blockbusters are going to be seen in theaters big budget uh dramas or um i you know big you know the award season pushers and the big franchisees yeah those are going to be theatrically released action adventure movies things that you know showcase like big spectacle that obviously should be seen on the big screen um comedies or horror movies that benefit from uh, having an audi- a live audience reacting with with you That those that those should clearly be seen at least in public, if not on the big screen, Um, and you know once again, like what I think what this comes down to is some movies, be it their writing, be it their production value, some just aren't ready for prime time. I guess is what I'm trying to get at, and I think possession of Hannah Grace is kind of what drove this home for me. Uh, you've got TV, a TV writer, uh, a foreign, uh, a, a, you know, a, a, a European director with TV actors. This this movie feels like it should be released direct to video because these people are not ready for the big time. Nick Thune is clearly, you know, could easily be ready for a, a real movie. But this was these the rest of the, the everyone else involved doesn't feel like they're quite there yet they're like second stage at second city you know or, or side stage you know something some it's the people who aren't the big players and you know and that's not the case for everything like there are some small independent sometimes they're a bit like border border is something i could easily see on the big screen it should be seen on a big screen it should be you know experienced that way you know seeing it at home maybe you get this get a similar experience but i feel like. It, you know, having a mo- the thing with theatrical releases is that they should benefit from either being seen with a large audience or on a large screen. They shouldn't, you know, they don't have to be the biggest thing ever, but they should. They should be a spectacle, or they should be a crowd pleaser. They should, you know, something. They should be worth paying ten dollars to see. And there are that I've been, you know, noticing this a lot as I review every weekly new release. Some movies just aren't meant to be seen on the big screen. Some movies are should have been seen on Netflix or Redbox or on FX or HBO. You know, they don't need to be seen. uh, You know, they don't need to be You don't need to be paying ten dollars a ticket plus whatever, depending on your area, ten dollars on average to see a movie that just isn't very good. They just they just the the you know the the cake isn't done yet. The bread hasn't fully risen. The yeast hasn't fully risen in the bread. It's not finished yet. And whereas music, you know, having an unfinished song isn't as bad because the, most of the music availability is either through radio or streaming, where it's not as expensive. For a movie to not feel finished, it 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 feels like you're wasting your time and your money because they're longer and you have to be seated in one position in order to see it and you have to pay extra to see it more so than a song so this isn't to dislike indie cinema or you know art house cinema things that are not as big as hollywood movies because there are even some like i said the possession of Hannah Grace was from Sony Pictures. This was a big, bu- this was a big studio release, and for them to release a subpar product is very, is you know, is very telling. That's why I think some movies, and that's the thing with the without, before theaters were the way to go; they were the only outlet. Then came television, so some things could were better made for television, and then now you have streaming. And when there are better options on Hulu and Amazon and Netflix than what's in the theaters, then Hollywood studios need to up their game if they want to release something theatrically. If they expect audiences to pay 10 bucks on average to see their product, then they need to make sure that product is worth paying that much to see. And I think what it stems down to is that writing is a very... Underappreciated and un and very undervalued uh, uh art form in Hollywood, and I think in a lot of media and comics as well and TV, when the writing is great, everybody praises it. Everybody acknowledges good writing, but they don't acknowledge that we should elevate all the writing. Like we praise our great writers. But we should also be acknowledging, like, oh, this is really good. These are this is what we should be doing. This should be the good should be the average, and I feel like writing is such an undervalued thing that you get movies that are so formulaic, underwritten, not very well thought out. Thankfully, I think Marvel is trying to overcome their formulas and be interesting and have have more thought out writing, but most big, but like most of, like Disney, Disney is basically might as well be using the exact same script for the Lion King from what they're showing us, unless they're adding something new to the story. Why do we need to see it again? And Dumbo, the writing doesn't seem to be there as much. It feels like it's very, very, very kind of by the numbers. D- Beauty and the Beast, basically a, almost a carbon copy of a, or an amalgamation of the stage musical and the, and the original movie that they did the Disney animated movie and coalesce into one thing. And yeah, it either the writing is poor or the writing is or the or writing is lazy or it just isn't up to par. And I feel like studios should have shouldn't have should have a better system of measuring good screenwriting. And if you want it to if you want your movie to get made, you have to pass the bar Pass this, past this watermark in order to qualify for getting a script. Otherwise, we won't finance you. And I feel like that's, and once again, that is kind of, you know, exclusive. Yeah, it's very exclusive. It's very elitist. Like, oh, all movies have to be written great. No, all movies should have a par. They should have a par, a base level in order to qualify to be made. If you aren't this good, why should we make your movie? And I feel like that's the problem. Is that they under writing is so undervalued because you can cover that up with either the act with either star recognition or effects budgets. They think that those things because it's they focus on the visual aspect of filmmaking, that the storytelling aspect is completely neglected. And I feel like when that's why even though they'll appreciate great writers, they will never value writing as the as part of the art form and as part of the process because one like comics so much of it is focused on the visualization of the story and not the actual writing of the story so while novelists will live or die by their writing you know every but everywhere else writing can be can be covered up and sometimes it's just not very well covered up and sometimes they just Do not put in the effort to make up for bad writing. And I feel like if Hollywood put more emphasis on having better writing standards, we probably would be seeing better movies. Because it all starts at the very beginning. Your base level for the production process is the writing, is the script. So that should be the best it could be. No matter what, even if you're doing it during the filming process... It should always be at the best it could be, and I feel like that's where the problem comes in because they you know the writing is the key to making a good movie ultimately, even if it's an effects driven movie there's a reason people like the m c u ultimately more than the Michael Bay Transformers movies while the money is there for transformers the where where does the most money is where the story doesn't matter in places where the story Isn't important because you can't understand the story. Namely China. There's more people in China. And they don't need to understand the story. Because all they're getting is visual spectacle. Whereas over here. Even our visual spectacle should have a reason to be seen. It's why people don't think highly of James Cavern's Avatar. It was the highest grossing movie of all time. It is still currently the highest grossing movie of all time. And yet... How many people still talk about Avatar? How many people still care that they're making two sequels to Avatar? How many people were anticipating how ma- think about this Marvel mis uh, mis misannou- you know kind of mis mistook their announcement for the Avengers Four teaser. They said it was going to be coming out during the week of this episode, the week leading up to this episode, and now it'll be the week the Wednesday after this episode releases. People were, were, were like flabbergasted. Like, oh, it's not coming out. Where's it coming out. I need, I need to see this. People were hype for the new event for Avengers Four. How many people when they announced that they finished completing James Cameron's Avatars Two and Three and that they're ready to begin post production? How many people actually gave a damn that that was done? Like, oh, oh, oh! How many people were as hyped for? avatar 2 as they were for avengers 4 like that's the thing people were hyped for the lion king remake and now the hype is kind of mixed because you've got the people who are like this is bad especially the animation fans who are like the animated movie looks so much better this new live action is like this new quote-unquote live action is muted and boring and flat and I kind of, I'm kind of in that camp because unless there's like, I love the cast, but unless they're bringing something new to the table, why would I re- watch a lesser version? Like it's like with the the sequels. Why would I watch a lesser version of the thing that I love when I could just go back and rewatch the thing that I love? And I feel like that's Bob Iger's biggest problem is that he is more keen on milking people's nostalgia than in trying to build onto the brand that is Disney. And thankfully there are we're seeing that more so on the animation side. They are trying to build new properties. Zootopia, Wreck and Ralph, um uh you know these new princesses. So there there is some there is there is building on the animation side and they seem to be doing chugging ahead full steam on that end. But ultimately I feel like Disney under Iger is going to be the most forgettable uh, in terms of, like, the, especially the live action movies. Like, that was the era that they remade all their classics because they had no other ideas to work on. And when they weren't remaking classics, they made lesser versions of other stories, like uh, Nutcracker and whatnot. So, and once again, I think where the live action movies have worked were things like The Jungle Book or Pete's Dragon, where they took what was there expounded on it, made new made a new story, something new that you haven't seen already. And then there were like little bits and pieces of those things that you liked from the original. Not so much in Peach Dragon, that Peach Dragon was almost an entirely different movie. But I think that's why it worked because it was an entirely different movie. It wasn't the exact same movie you saw the last time. Now it's trying something new, interesting, try to try to change the story around in a way that you haven't seen before. And I think that's where remakes and reboots work best. That's why I praise the uh, Planet of the Apes reboot so well because it's so – it handles the premise in a way that we haven't seen before and it's interesting and well-written and well-executed and I think that's why uh, when it comes down to what we're getting now, it's ultimately – what what I want to see from theaters – from theatrical releases is i don't i want to see my ten dollars spent well i want my two hours and my ten dollars to have been worth it even it doesn't have to be the best thing i ever saw on the on screen like i said wreck it ralph 2 was not as good as the first movie i did not feel like my time and money was wasted seeing it border is not going to be one of my favorite movies ever you know, it's 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 going to be a movie I, I I recommend and I appreciate, but it's not going to be one of my favorites. My money and my time was well spent. Possession of Hannah Grace, The Grinch, um, Grind- Crimes of Grindelwald, those are movies where my time and money were wasted, and I feel like that's ultimately what it comes down to: is my time and money being well spent, or is it being taken from me? And that's that's ultimately what my reason for doing this is for you the listeners. We I have to de- I want to decide and let you de- ultimately you're the only one who could decide whether or not something is wasting wasting your time or not because everyone's definition of that is different. But that's why I want to share with you why I think one thing or another is a waste of time so that you can make an informed decision based on everybody as long the more voices there are telling you whether or not to see or not see something then that's when you can make an informed decision to see it or not see it that's why aggregators like Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes and even the i m d b fan like star systems that's why they're so valued by critic not only studios but like people users that seeing what other people think, whether it's users or critics or people you know just people within the industry on Twitter, seeing people talk about something and hearing what their thoughts are informs your decision on whether or not to see something if you haven't decided already. If you saw the trailer and were down for it, then you're then hearing good things or bad things will dissuade will either persuade you to keep going forward or dissuade you into ignoring it. Whereas if whereas with some and then ultimately then you can decide, once you've seen it, if that was worth, worth your time and your money. And for me, things like possession of Hannah Grace aren't worth my time or money like if it was they definitely aren't worth my time but but if i saw it on redbox or netflix i would be more forgiving because oh yeah this is a very weak netflix movie like like it shouldn't i shouldn't have been paid i shouldn't have paid ten dollars to see this by itself this should have been included in my ten dollars every month to netflix and i think that's what ultimately what it comes down to when if your writing is not ready for the big screen, you should not be, you should not be, you, your movie should not be shown to a wide audience. And I know that comes off as very elitist. I acknowledge that, but ultimately, if we want theater going, the theater going experience to be better, to be worth paying to see, we need to men- ensure that the movies that we're paying to see are worth seeing. If you're showing me things that, I could, that, that are worse than what I could see for free or as part of the packages I pay for stuff at home, then why are you wasting my time? We have so many outlets for media now. If you, you have to be competing with Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, as well as all of the various TV channels and every other studio out there, your everything should either be your A or B game they should be your be- the best that you can offer and if you and if it's not and even if it's not the best thing if you think people will like it otherwise why would you why would you just throw something out why would you just dump something into theaters and like uh, uh, that's the part that I don't get like why would you be contractually obligated to release something in theaters like like that um that really bad movie that uh, Billy Bob Thornton did, where Amber Heard and Johnny Depp were still in a relationship when they made it, and now it's really awkward to try and watch. Um, London Fields. Like, if that, why would you release that to theaters when you could just put it in, onto Redbox? Put it into the direct-to-video bin at Walmart. <laughs> you know, it's one, five for five at Walmart. That's where it belongs. It should not be, I sh- people should not be paying $10 to see that in theaters. It's not worth it. And I don't know. I I, I feel like. There's just this weird obligation to just dump whatever you've got into theaters when some things just aren't worth seeing in theaters. And and I mean that's the thing. This weekend has shown that you don't need new releases every single week. Sometimes it's good to take a break. Sometimes it's good to have if you've just had a major weekend, just have a a sol- you know just have a new release. Where, have a weekend with no new releases. Take the time to recoup. Keep re- keep keep re- keep gaining. Keep it, you know, keeping, keep raking in the gains for, from the last weekend. And then once people have seen, once people have taken the time to see those, then you can move on to the new stuff. So I I guess that's the thing. It's like, not every weekend needs a new release. And there are all these outlets for, like, that's the thing. Next week, I'm going to, I'm going to try to see Andy Serkis's Mowgli. I assumed that was going to come out in theaters. I would not be surprised if it's better than some of the stuff I will be seeing. I have been seeing in theaters and yet it's been, had to be released through Netflix because that's that's the, that was the person who paid to release it. So we'll wait and see how that, how well that turned out. Um, how it compares to the live action jungle book that Disney did and you know how, how it handles the story. But for what it's worth, I, that's why I appreciate the double toasted model. Corey Coleman had, the, you know, I don't know if it was initially his idea, but you know, he always kind of showcased the non-traditional rating system: full price, matinee, rental, and then the the extends, the extensions from that, better than sex, and some old BS and whatnot. Is this worth paying full price, matinee price, or should you rent it? Though though, having those descriptors says volumes. More than a number rating, because there are plenty of movies that have low number ratings that you could easily pay to see through if you for renting just because it's so bad. But there are some movies with high ratings that you probably won't want to pay full price to see. So that's why I ver- I value their system so well so much. It's so unique, and I know that there are probably other people who have similar systems like that. But it's perfect. It's a perfect way to describe movies as a commodity. How much should you pay to see this movie? Is this movie worth paying to see for such and such price? I'm trying to think of how to end this discussion. But yeah. What it comes down to is that studios need to up their game. If they want uh, us to continue to pay money seeing stuff in theaters. Because if we got better stuff at home. Why? We should just you know, take, keep our money and stay home, you know, do, do better, you know, make better stuff. And once again, there's uh, writing is always undervalued. So you need to keep, you you almost need a new standard of like, here's, we aren't going to pay money for a subpar script. It doesn't matter who's attached to it. Doesn't matter what if we don't, if, if we, if this comes across our desk, we read it and we don't like it. And we need the we need such and such thing. I, I feel like they should have. I they have that process already, but it's skewed. Like it's like there's still, they still there's still stuff coming through that that's really weak scripts that they think they can overcome with other stuff. And I feel like that should be the problem. That should be the the you know the the kibosh. They, that's where they should put the kibosh on. Like doesn't matter how much money we put into this with the actors or the effects. Is the story any good? Would I watch this movie? And ultimately, I think that's what it should come down to. Oh, well. Um, so with that in mind, uh, let's take a look back at the week that was in this week's box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. Most of the stuff stayed the same this week. Uh, there are only some minor changes. Um, like... Only a couple of things were thrown off by the, by one of the new, by the only new release this weekend. And then everything else kind of stayed stagnant. This was not a very exciting weekend. Uh, so as we look, uh, last week's number seven, Robin Hood dropped out. Um, and our new, our newest release, the position of Hannah Grace premiered at number seven with $6.5 million and had a extra little boost from the foreign markets premiering at, oh, globally at 10.6 million dollars on a 9.5 million dollar budget it doesn't matter how <laughs> it doesn't matter how mu- how bad it does after this it still made back its money it's so cheap and i think that's the problem with horror movies they don't have to be good they just have to be cheap and yeah this will be quickly forgotten even if it does recoup its losses uh staying at number 6 was instant family with 7.1 uh, million dollars bringing its domestic total up to 45.9 and its world total up to 49 million dollars it took three weeks for it to make back its budget this is this is you know by definition a flop of a movie and it's good this should not have made back its money this is not a good movie and i'm glad that people are noticing that this is not that that, that and noticing that and staying home Meanwhile, staying at number five, we've got Bohemian Rhapsody with 8.1 million, bringing its domestic gross up to 164 million, and its worldwide gross up to 500 and half a billion dollars for the Queen movie. So it doesn't matter how good it is or not; it as long as it's got Queen, that's what people want, you know. So maybe there's a better Queen movie down the line, but you know, people just love Queen. It's it's a it's it's a and it's hard to blame them. Meanwhile, staying at number four, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Gwind- Grindelwald brought in $11.2 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $134 million, and its worldwide gross half a billion dollars as well, $519 million. So it took two weeks fewer than Bohemian Rhapsody for, and I think that's just, once again, comes down to the fact that Harry Potter is still the phenomenon. And you know, we're definitely going to get more of those I just hope they get better because what we're getting now is very subpar. And especially since it's coming from the creator herself, that's a really sad fact that that the movies are not any good anymore. That they're, that they're so bad and that you almost need somebody else to come in and say, okay, look, you tell us what story you want to tell and then we'll do it from there. We'll get actual screenwriters to do it from there because you clearly don't know what you're doing. Uh, meanwhile, something we had a bit of a switch up at the top spots. Uh, Creed dropped from number two to number three uh, with $16.8 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $81 million, and its worldwide gross after two weeks up to $92 million. So it's just about made back its money, Good and good for it. It deserves it. Uh, we'll see uh, how well it does in the long run, if it can hold on to that, or if it's going to kind of trail behind the first Creed But, you know, so maybe, I mean, maybe it was just a bad weekend release for it because it came out against a couple of juggernauts. Um, So we'll see uh, how it plays out in the long run by the end of its run. Uh, uh, The switch up uh, brought Dr. Seuss's The Grinch from number three to number two with $17.7 million as we lead into the holidays. And that brings its domestic gross up to $203 million. And it's worldwide gross of the $268 million. This is clearly, Illusion is clearly more of an American phenomenon anymore. Uh, that's where all the money is coming in from them. And I think it's just because, I, ultimately I think it's because of Christmas. Uh, as, as we head into the holiday season, uh, a story of the Grinch is a perfect holiday trip uh, for people to see. Even if the movie isn't any good, you know, it's still an a, a easy pick for them. And staying at number one, Ralph Breaks the Internet, bringing in point seven million million this weekend, uh, bringing its domestic gross up to $119 million, and its worldwide gross after two weeks up to $206 million. So it's still trailing behind the first movie, but it managed to make back its budget. We'll see if it can make back the marketing and whatnot. Otherwise, I feel like this will be you know one of the lesser of the Disney movies. And I think that makes sense, because it ultimately is too tied into uh trend writing and not not being unique or interesting it's disney's the emoji movie it's cashing in on popular trends now about before they get unpopular and i feel like you know uncle great you know uncle disney saying hello fellow kids while doing the floss dance is definitely one of the lamest uh acts from them oof but the, the, I st- there's at least interesting stuff in this movie to make it not terrible. So at least there's that. All right, that about does it for this. Uh, bo- that, that about does it for the box office. Once again, just nothing very interesting going on. Uh, we'll see if the new weekend takes it up. So let's take a look forward to the weekend ahead in the trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk Read it all, starts Friday So I was checking the release schedule for uh, this coming weekend And it turns out there aren't any scheduled wide releases At least uh, not according to my major uh, sources like the numbers Um, Yeah, everything seems to be opening in limited release Mary Queen of Scott Uh, Ben is back. Vox Lux. um, Divide and conquer. The story of Roger Ailes. The Indivisibles. Like so much of what's coming out this coming weekend. like there's a re-release of Schindler's List. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, So yeah, I can't really give a trailer talk because I don't know what all is going to be coming out in my area. I I could, I could have. You know, Mary Queen of Scots or Vox Lux come out. uh, But the big releases aren't going to come until next week. That's when you got, like, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And, uh, let me see. Uh, Mortal Engines and the Mule. The the Once Upon a Deadpool uh, re-release. That PG-13 Deadpool movie is coming out. Uh, Schindler's List, 25th anniversary is, like, the biggest uh, thing coming out. Something called Great, Great, Great? Great? But once again, I don't know what all will be coming to my area, so we uh, we may next week may just be all you know <laughs> all like Netflix and chat for the most part because i've got I got no idea what to expect from this coming week. Like, I look ahead to Thursday night when the new releases come out. Nothing at my local theater listed. Um, Borders still at my art house theater. And then there's, like, the 25th anniversary of Schindler's List. And it's all just the same stuff. There may not be any new releases, as far as I can tell. Because a lot of the stuff hasn't been updated for Friday. But most of it seems to be just, like, the Schindler's List re-release. So... I guess that'll be the only... That may be the only thing I'll talk about in theaters for next week. But, uh... So yeah, no real trailer talk for this set, for this episode, sadly. I don't think this has ever happened to me in all of my uh podcasting. I don't think there's ever been a week where there were no wide releases. I mean, hey. <laughs> that th- th- I, That's what I've been talking about. Fewer movie releases, but... Man, it's just feels weird for it to happen in as i'm talking about it you know like oh hollywood shouldn't release so many movies it it, it can ease up a bit oh i i've i've got nothing to talk about Ooh, oh boy well we'll see how that turns out uh so yeah next week's gonna be a big surprise (laughs) i'm gonna see if i can't get outlaw king and Mowgli watched uh for netflix and chat and then just just take a look at what all's going on around me. Um, I did catch that Hulu has a, a weird belated sequel to Life Size, that Tyra Banks Lindsay Lohan movie from the '90s. I may look into that. So yeah, the, the, I'll see what I can find. I'll scrounge up something, even if it's not in theaters. So uh, I'll announce. I'll not stay. Stay tuned to the social media. I'll announce uh, what I find over there. That about does it for this episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at gummycatnetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to favorite us and whitelist us on your ad blockers. And let it, And you can follow not only me, but all of our other find Uh, fine programs. Uh, we got the latest from Living in the Stacks out. Uh, we got a major announcement as well. So if you want to keep up to date on the goings on and the changes going on with Living in the Stacks, there's that coming. There's that as well. Uh, you can also check out Donna's stuff with with Snarkcast, uh, her, her, um, Buffy show, her Supernatural show, uh, her horror podcast, all her, her regular geek stuff. I believe Vanessa is still doing, um, uh we odd vegas all of us all of our we've got new content coming out all the time and if you yourself are a podcast maker and you would like to join our lovely network we'd love to see what you've got and uh send all your inquiries to uh gummy cat networks at gmail.com uh if you want to follow us on mobile you can do so through the various podcasting apps we're available through um itunes google play spotify spreaker and vicariously iHeartMedia, media stitcher um i'm looking to try and get us onto podbean but i'm gonna have to hold off on that for right now because I, I need to pay some extra money to get on podbean but if i can do so then i can treat that as a secondary to patreon and then uh have that as an extra feed as well uh but yeah you can uh like <laughs> comment and subscribe i keep I'm working on a YouTube channel. Uh, I'm hoping to fu- uh, start that pretty soon, um, so I'm, I've got that uh, going on in my head. Uh, but you know, leave a five star rating and review. Let people know that they that you like the show and that they should check it out. Uh, and you can also do that through our social media. Our social media home is Facebook.com/slash/popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements come, and that's where uh, that's where you'll see all the latest from me uh when I announce new um yeah, when I announce my like when I my, my newest reactions to stuff, when I'm about to see new releases and when I'm about to do a munch along, things like that. Uh you can also check me out on Twitter where I where that where I'm the most active. There i there I do not only the um major announcements from Facebook, but I also have the Twitter munch along segments. I did one for the Pokemon, uh the power of us. Um I didn't do border uh or possession of hand of grace just cuz the theaters were too populated but uh there were like three of us seeing Pokemon at the at at my showing so I I kind of took I kind of you know kind of show you can see my thought process watching that uh, and then you can see all my, um and then I go also do uh the trailer talk for uh, new releases uh that announcing what the new tra- you know announcing my thoughts on the new trailers for stuff coming out and uh, that, you know, I am also interacting with other, uh, film reviewers and other film media personnel and other fans. So if you want to, you know, join the conversation there, you can do follow me at, in, at Corn Junkie Pod. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. I'm still trying to figure out what the, what my best use of that is. I'm still not finding a great outlet. I don't think my podcast was best suited for instagram sadly i don't know maybe if i maybe if somebody can give me some ideas if you have some ideas for what i can do for the instagram page you can let me know um uh through the email and then um it then the last place is you can join us on stardust i'm on stardust at popcorn junkie and you can uh follow me and uh double toasted uh the internet's other john bailey and the king of stardust uh epic voice guy he does the best reactions bar none and then you can find some other uh, people you can, that you might enjoy. Small people, small people with their own channels, small people with their own podcasts, and just regular moviegoers. You know, you can see what people are saying about the new releases, about TV shows, about the new trailers. You can check all that out on Stardust, and be sure to follow me at Popcorn Junkie and follow whoever, whomever you may like, and maybe even share your own uh, re- reactions to stuff. You know, this is we're having fun over on Stardust. You should join us. And then, uh, lastly, if there's anything you want to say, want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, re- you know reactions. What did you think of the new release? Like, did you did you like the new Pokemon movie? Did you did you hate it? Uh, what are your thoughts on the possession of Hannah Grace? Uh, any corrections to something? Like, was I right about the Dybbuk box thing? I think that's what it was, from what I remember. But yeah, if there's any any kind of Uh, corrections let me know Uh, if you want and if you want your uh, email read on the show you have to let me know in the in the message that you give me explicit permission to read this out on the show otherwise I will simply paraphrase it Um, and you know I would want to keep the conversation going so if you are a listener and you want you have your own thoughts and uh, reactions to what to what I discussed you know, feel free to, to send me an email, and we can either correspond privately, or I, or we can you can have your message heard on the show. I, I, I have no qualms about sharing that lets me know that you are listening and that you're interested in what I'm saying. Is all you know, even if it's just saying, "Hey, look, you made a mistake here," and I'd be ha- I'd be happy to correct myself. Um, so yeah, that about does it for this episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and this year is almost over. Uh, and it's crazy, you know? Sometimes you hate life so much that it decides to hate you. Right back. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nathio N-A-F-Y-O. Look up Nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. they want to release something in theaters what Um, do you have to do this right now I'm in the middle of a thing I was in the middle of a point and you stepped all over that point are you what what is it that you want I gave you food I clean your litter what do you want from me is it just the attention hold on my asshole roommate just wants attention